0: A really good example would be if we're running on the track, I'm quite happy to do a set of eight 400s. Um, it'll give me what I'm after as far as athletes running at race pace or race speed or goal pace that we know from what are the demands of competition. Um, I find that that number of efforts still has the training effect that I'm after, and it has a little less risk. The Trafflox Show, 224.
1: What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I'm going to coach Jono Hall. Jono is the head coach of Triathlon Canada's National Performance Center. That means that he coaches some of the top Canadian athletes, for example, uh, probably most notably if you're following the WTS and ITU circuits, Tyler Mislerchuk, And he also has his own squad of international world-class athletes on that short course uh, scene. So in this conversation with Jono, we discuss his coaching philosophy and hear his thoughts on a whole lot of topics related to triathlon performance. This was a live interview that we recorded down in the south of Portugal, in the Algarve, while Jono uh, and uh, Bob McGee, who you'll hear in uh, next week's episode, where they're with the squad of athletes that I just mentioned for a training camp preparing for the first WTS race of the season in Abu Dhabi. And some of the athletes will be racing World Cup races or European Cup races uh, as well. So uh, the final stages of preparation before the competitive season really starts. And uh, it was great to be given the opportunity to watch the squad train and and to hang out with uh, Jono and Bobby. So uh, really appreciated that. And of course, super fun to be recording uh, another interview live with one of the top coaches in the industry. Before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. They help you individualize your hydration and electrolyte intake because everybody loses a different amount of sodium in their sweat. And when sweat rates differ, that means that your sodium replacement requirements may be very different from the person next to you. You can figure out what uh, you should do in your training and racing by getting a free hydration plan on precisionhydration.com and you can get uh, 15% off your order of electrolytes with the promo code show 15 and a big thanks to Roka that you can find on roca.com. One of the most impressive pieces of uh, innovation that uh, Roca has in their arsenal is the arms up technology that they have in all their wetsuits from entry level to high-end wetsuits as well as in their tri-suits. Uh, so the arms of technology simply means that you will have uh, better shoulder flexibility uh, to make it feel less, to make you feel less constricted and constrained when you're swimming in the wetsuit. And uh, the beauty of having the arms of technology in the tri suits as well as the wetsuit is that uh, if you have ROCA tri suits and wetsuits, you really minimize that restriction that you might otherwise feel, even if you have a Roka uh, wetsuit, because the tri suit works uh, together with the wetsuit to minimize that. Go to roca.com forward slash TTS to get a 20% discount code of your order of wetsuits, trisuits, suits, swimskins, goggles, and high performance eyewear from Roca. Now, without any further ado, here's my interview with Jono Hall. So this is a live interview from the Algarve in southern Portugal. I'm here with uh, Jono Hall, who is uh, from Triathlon Canada and here with his squad of athletes, Canadian and international. So, Jono, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time. Can you introduce yourself and uh, your role and responsibilities?
0: Thanks for having me, Michael. It's, uh, It's great to be here. I'm currently employed by Triathlon Canada. Uh, I'm head coach, or my title is head coach to the National Performance Centre, but I play a bit of a head coach role across the entire program. Um, I'm I'm an Australian, as you'll tell by my accent, um, but I have worked now. This is my third full-time position with the different federations. So I started with the Australian Federation, uh, went to USA Triathlon as their performance leader and then graduated or migrated, whatever you want to say, to Triathlon Canada to play this current role. So um, I've had a lot of experience travelling um, and it's great to be here in the Algarve with the athletes preparing for what is obviously a very important year.
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, just to, to give an idea for the listeners that are following the the ITU WTS circuits, um,
0: who are some of the athletes that you have in your squad? So the Canadian athletes I have in the squad um, are basically our Olympic athletes, which is Tyler Mislachuk, uh, Alexi Lepage, Matthew Sharp and Desiree Ridnow, who's not here, who's at home studying at the moment. And then due to the nature of my contract with Triathlon Canada, I'm also allowed to coach internationals, which is a two-prong approach to you know, enriching the environment um, and it's also to do with the financial nature of my contract. And and here in the Algarve, I currently have Kirsten Kasper, who races for the US, uh, and I have Kevin McDowell, who also competes for the US. And on top of that, I've just uh, had another young male athlete, uh, Blair Logie, join the squad, who is uh, originally from Scotland, who resides here in the Algarve. And so what I've got is a, a predominantly a, an Olympic squad, but uh, I've created a mix of athletes who... Um, are all following the same goals and all add something to each other. And that's probably something we'll touch on a little bit later, what it takes to be part of that squad. Yes, definitely. Uh, before we go there,
1: uh, can you give an overview of your coaching philosophy, if uh, you want to call it that, or how you just think about coaching?
0: That's a good question. I mean, the philosophy, I think, is a, is a key part. And it's probably where I start talking about my coaching to people, because I think it sets... It sets people up to have an understanding, whether that be athletes or other coaches or people I'm, I'm talking with. And, and that philosophy is all around getting the, you know, the highest level of performance with the least amount of work. Um, and there's a couple of reasons behind that. I'm a big subscriber in the nation of uh, efficiency and economy. Um, and so, again, maximising what we get. Um, but the main reason is I think it's there's a relationship between getting the right amount of work and keeping athletes injury-free and there's a huge relationship between athletes being injury-free and going on to perform. And then there's this question of longevity as well is, you know, can I have an impact on athletes across one Olympic cycle? Can I keep those athletes in for three or four Olympic cycles? And I think that the approach of, like I said, you cannot dispute the level of performance that needs to be attained to race at that level, but you can change and manipulate and gamble a little bit the amount of training and the quantity of training that goes into achieving that. And that's certainly where where I fit. So it, it I think it, it suits people who have a similar mentality, but it also suits athletes who have a very high ability or very high potential, but haven't been able to cope with training given by other coaches. And so... I guess if I talk a little bit about, people talk to me about that what the perception is of of my approach, and that is that it's quite low volume and and low duration as a whole. Um, and for some people, I think it works because that's how they respond best. and for other people, it works just because that's the f- the maximum that their you know their individual bodies can take. Um, yet I think I've demonstrated at times that you can still be effective performer you know despite not doing the same amount of training or just taking the same approach as, as some of their peers and competitors.
1: Yeah, and probably comes uh, back to a bit of FOMO that we talked about with uh, Bobby here. We did that interview uh, just before yours and uh, perhaps like seeing other competitors in other groups do a lot of volume, then that might make some athletes nervous that shouldn't I be doing the same volume? But uh, at the end of the day, like the performance of the athlete is what uh, what what determines what, what is the right volume for that athlete so what is a typical i mean it's pro- probably a range with the different athletes that you have but how much might they be training in a week around, right around right now which is mid to late february so we're getting close to the season what, what is the typical volume
0: yeah, we, so I measure volume in time, um, and that can be different to other coaches, but we use time as the primary measure of volume. Um, it kind of oscillates between 18 and up to 22 hours. 22 hours is a big week for my group. Um, and based on, obviously, the thing that really dictates what we can do is achieving the outcomes that we set. Um, and so with someone like a, a you know, Tyler Mislachuk, who, um, was successful at the test event, for me, it's always some sort of, uh, justification of the approach we're taking and so as a coach I mean I'm quite anxious as a coach I take the responsibility uh, very highly and you obviously have confidence in what you deliver but you never have that confidence confirmed until the athletes race and so I'm very confident in my approach and when the athletes come out and perform at a high level I guess it further it gives me further confidence in the approach I take which then transfers down to the athletes but when you I'm very careful not to buy into what other athletes do and what other coaches do because the reality is I don't spend a lot of time in other people's programs and everything that I presume to hear is hearsay and so you know I hear you know that 30 hours 35 hours I have witnessed training volumes much higher than that um, and my question is always why um, and my main question is that's great but can we have the same level of success and and Get it in an easier way. I think that's and that's the big thing. And I, I think we were chatting uh, earlier offline a little bit about that. How you know I express that. And one of the ways I speak with the athletes of this current generation is this notion around the financial piece. And that is, you know, if there's a ten dollar product, do you pay fifteen dollars for it? Do you hand over more than what you really need? Are you happy to pay ten? Or are you not excited about trying to get it for six or eight or whatever? And obviously there's there's a greedy element to that and there's an ambitious element to that. Um, but it's really based on the health and well being of the athletes. But obviously the the thing that allows it to happen is performance. If we trained eighteen to twenty hours a week and the athletes weren't successful, I wouldn't have a job. And my my theory and my method and my and the philosophy that underpin that wouldn't wouldn't be valid in any way or form. Has
1: this philosophy formed uh, mostly from your coaching experience or did it uh, stem from your athletic career? For listeners that may not know, you were a javelin world champion, uh, so you have a, a very decorated athletic career of your own.
0: Did you train this way yourself or is this pure coaching experience? I guess my philosophy and my practices are grounded in a, in a huge range of experiences. Um, I'm very careful... Not to use my own individual experience as an athlete um, as examples, but they certainly have value. And I think one of the things that has helped me become a good coach is that as an athlete, it wasn't necessarily that I competed, that I had a huge range of different coaching approaches practiced on me. Um, and through that, I guess I formed my own thoughts and philosophies on what could be successful. And you know, I went from having uh, a road cycling coach with the Australian national team, who who came from an East German background, who was incredibly high volume. Like we did, I think we did three years where I did forty four thousand kilometres on the bike a year, which is a lot of volume. Um, I could handle that volume. Whether I was successful off that volume is. I think I was successful with that volume, but I always had in this mind of like, could I be as successful with less volume? Because one thing that, that as a result of that was the cost, the cost to me, uh, physically, the cost from a, a time. It was the only thing I had in my life at that time was cycling because there was literally no room for anything else. And, and I think we've seen, you see things like burnout, um, then when I went to duathlon and I had some real limitations with what I could do with my run volume, I was almost forced just to take the approach of I'm going to maximise what I can do. I'm not going to get caught up in how much it is because at the end of the day, I'm doing everything I can. And it was very low volume. Um, and so you almost had two opposing approaches um, that in my experience I found success or a way of being successful and I think pulling those together and then when I started to coach professionally I guess I took those approaches always apply them to the individual athlete it's not a blanket approach Um, but I took those approaches and started to apply them to athletes and it's it's almost I mean it's we're practicing a form of science where we're experimenting, we're observing, we're taking notes and then we're looking at whether we achieve what we thought we would do. And and it's still very much that process. And I'll be honest, if if an athlete came to me and said, uh, look, I need 35 hours, I would actually probably tell them I'm the wrong person. I'm I'm the wrong person to do that. Um, And the person who really interestingly helped me was was my wife, Erin Dentham, who was a medalist in London. Um, Her approach was quite interesting because she had a picture in her mind of what she was willing to do to be successful. And she was very clear that if she said, I remember saying, if I had to do 30 hours a week to be successful, I wouldn't do the sport because I think the cost outweighs the benefit. And I remember thinking that, and obviously the, the nature of our relationship that we're in a personal relationship and a coaching relationship, it resonated with me and it made me step back and think that sometimes there are athletes who as much as they want it, they're still doing this you know, cost, benefit, payout all the time. And she was very clear that, you know, if I had to do X amount of training, I, I, it wouldn't be worth it. Um, and so over the time, all those experiences put together, working with a variety of people has helped me form my own philosophy. Um, and I encourage people to always go down that pathway is to to look for other ways of doing it um, and investigate them clearly and closely and how you would apply them. Because as a coach, you're creating these these things and these philosophies and these practices, but they're actually practiced on other people and And are they applicable and are they, uh, you know, do they stand up morally and ethically to, uh, you know, what you're tasked to do, which is at the end of the day as a coach, I've got people engaging me to help them reach their goals, not my goals, and so I've got to be always cognizant of that piece.
1: But well, that's a really, really good explanation of, uh, of a lot of things that, uh, that underpin your, your coaching. Uh, let's uh, talk about what you view as the fundamentals when it comes to performance in triathlon. What are the fundamental pieces that need to be in place to, to achieve peak performance?
0: The fundamentals for me are health and well being. I think that uh one of the things that there's a tendency for people to look at is the is the training and uh you know and how the training's broken down and and all the nuances that are actually real. But when you come back to the foundations and the fundamentals for an athlete to perform their best, they need to have stability, they need to have homeostasis, they need to have well being physically and and mentally. And that's the area that I prioritize. So at the end of the day, before I, you know, go into the detail of writing a training program or a training plan is my priority is making sure that the athletes are healthy to start off with and that they have if we do this plan we actually have a chance to be successful because the likelihood of success isn't guaranteed and it can be quite low it's a huge you know it's an incredibly uh, competitive world that we work in in, in triathlon um but it's further made it's made even harder if the athletes aren't healthy to start off with. And so when when I talk about foundations, I talk about that piece: health, well-being, um, stability, um, and then there's some other things that follow on as far as ambition, clear you know, clarity on their goals, clarity on what it is going to take. I think people go into sometimes enter into things without actually really acknowledging what it's going to take, and they get partway down that pathway and realize that it wasn't what they thought. So I don't sell them a false, you know, uh, bill of goods, so to speak. And then we add the training on top. So the training and that process really comes only when I'm comfortable that um, the athletes who have engaged me are in a good place to add training on top. And that's just a sense of responsibility that I feel personally. And I think people, it's interesting because I mean, coaching is a journey in itself. And, and just recently, people, and people like to put a name to everything. And someone started and it started to come up that, oh, you're a values coach. And I'm like, well, values coach. It doesn't really matter what the title is. And I'm not into putting things into titles and boxes. But it certainly does underpin the way I approach. And so when you talk about foundations, I talk about health and wellbeing. And other people might talk about another component of that. But for me that's that they're the pillars um, from which then I build the training plan on top of. And
1: uh, when it comes to the actual training component, where do you stand on the spectrum of like using the art of coaching and the
0: science of coaching and or balancing both of them? I think it's a real balance. I think the art and science of coaching um, is actually they're – two, they're two terms or terms used together that, that actually depict what exactly goes on every single day. Um, I love the science piece. Uh, I love, I've been fortunate to work with uh, some amazing exercise physiologists over time, um, and I and I put the science and sports med piece together. Um, so I really love the science and the, uh, the hard data and uh, the things that are hard to dispute behind it. But with that, I appreciate that that alone is only a part of the equation on delivering a training program. And so the art side of it, uh, the soft skills, for want of a better term, um, I think enable you to deliver the science. So I think one without the other doesn't really work. Um, I think it's fluid. I think that if you were to look at it and say, you know, is it 50-50? I'd say some days it is. I'd some, say some days it's 99-1. Um, and I think that's part of what you learn and what you start to uh, appreciate as a coach is that it's not black and white uh, and that if you can have a scientific mindset because I think that's important if you have a scientific mindset um, and then a scientific approach to match that mindset. For me, the next step is to have the right people who can help me because it's not my area of expertise, and then I can match that with the art piece, the softer skills, the the pieces that are about manipulating uh, what we're doing to get the outcome, then I think you have a successful foundation to have an impact on on especially high-performance athletes. Can you give uh, an example of uh, in your coaching,
1: like what is one component, whether it's something that goes into the training program that comes more from perhaps from the science side and then what is another component
0: that comes more from the
1: art side of things?
0: Yeah, I think from the science side... Um the The cycling component is the component where I probably use science and data in particular as 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 a really big guiding principle. Um, I think that as I approach, while it's three sports, I still approach them individually at times um and for me cycling and you've seen the cycle it's become very mathematical it's become very data driven and it's become scientific in nature i believe um to the level that it's quite easy to predict performance um when you when you have access to everyone's data uh and obviously it's easier if you have a world leading athlete, then you can actually know that you're working from the best case example Then it's easy to work backwards and say, okay, with that, that's going to help me make, make decisions. Um, And so the data on the bike really drives the amount of work we do on the bike. It drives the frequency on the bike um, and it drives the duration on the bike. And what really drives it is having a deep understanding of what are the demands of competition. And so That just comes with experience and time working in a sport and having had access to a, a great number of athletes but having the privilege to have access to not just a number of athletes but some of the best athletes is you start to be able to quite accurately determine what it takes. And it's like anything, once you know what it takes, you can start a process to getting there and you can start a process where every day you can assess are we getting there, are we getting closer, are we further away. So it holds a coach very accountable which again is an environment that I thrive in, but it's easy for the athletes to say, to determine, you know, when they say to me, are we getting better? I can show them they're getting better. It's not an opinion. It's something that is clear. Um, the art piece comes in actually is when you have an athlete who's clearly getting better physically is what happens next. Does that change their performance? Because performance really only happens on the field of play and that's where I believe the art side comes in. So it's like being given all the, all the right ingredients if you gave me the ingredients of a, the same ingredients as a Michelin star chef, I'm not going to make the same recipe. And so the science provides me the ingredients and a measure of the ingredients, the quantities, um, you know, the dosage, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the art of coaching is the piece that pulls all that together with human beings who make that, can make that quite chaotic. And like I said, I kind of keep reiterating that. You know, the aim is to practice something to ultimately perform, and so um, that's what we're constantly looking for. And I think that that mix and the way you go about it—it's um, certainly my. approach. I was going to say it's a right approach, but I'm going to hold back from saying. That. I think it's 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 certainly my approach, and I think there's times when that approach is has been validated. And I think, again, as coaching and uh, and, and working closely with Bobby McGee, we, we do speak a lot about this validation in coaching, um, and coaching and then building on confidence, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that art piece, the you know, it's the glue. People use all these cliches and nouns but it's the glue that holds the science together to actually make it work and be effective.
1: So, if you exemplify that a little bit, so taking the you have the the training ingredients sort of from the from the data and science and and then, but to take that to performance, you need the art. What does that look like? Is that instilling confidence in the athlete? Is it a race strategy? Is it just keeping them in a good, balanced peace of mind day in day out through the training what what are some of the
0: examples of of how how to actually take that training and make it into performance? Actually, that's a really good question and it makes me think. I think that psychology is the key part in the art of coaching and how it's how it's delivered with the athletes. Um, I think how you create confidence, um, I'm not into creating motivation because I think motivation is, is an innate quality and I don't think it's the role as a coach to motivate people, but I think creating confidence and belief is a huge part of it. Um, and most of the time, and this is a really general subject but my experience has been that despite the obvious athletes find a way to talk themselves down and so the science and the data that I do gives me a concrete this is where you are this is how it stacks up you could leave the conversation there and go therefore you should but the reality is despite some of that that obvious stuff athletes have doubts and then working on the psychology part to help them overcome those doubts or get rid of those doubts, knowing that there's a little bit of doubt is healthy because that can be motivating and inspiring, but to overcome those hurdles so that at the end of the day, what I'm looking for on on race day is that they are performing at the level they've trained at. And the number of athletes that I see don't – like there's something that happens between leaving training and getting to racing where they actually don't even – repeat something that they've done a 100 times. And so, again, it's quite a simple way of looking at it. The tools of doing it are very complex because they're individual. But that kind of approach on the outside with the psychology of getting people confident, and confidence I think is a really big factor and and it's helped by trust. And so if the athlete's trust in the process, uh, it generally helps me to talk them into being more confident with some rational thinking and getting out of their rational thinking with the aim that on race day, if they're good enough, they just have to do something they've done 100 times. And so it's not this insurmountable barrier of I have to be better than I've ever been. It's I have to be as good as I was last Thursday in training when there was no pressure or no one watching or, you know, none of the things that potentially take away from that. And so, again, that's where I think the the art side of it, uh, for want of a better term, really is applicable
1: and uh, we already talked about volume quite a bit so let's touch on the other side of the coin intensity how do you incorporate that in your training
0: yeah intensity forms a big part of my training um i think i but what i do is i really i'm really careful on the amount uh the timing the frequency uh, and i probably err on the side of caution um and so an example would be um you know, a really good example would be if we're running on the track, I'm quite happy to do a set of eight 400s. Um, it'll give me what I'm after as far as the athletes running at race pace or race speed or goal pace that we know from what are the demands of competition. Um, I find that that number of efforts still has the training effect that I'm after and it has a little less risk. Um, and I remember the first time doing that, People were very clear that you know it was impossible to achieve. Perform that's just not enough work. And for me, that was a bit of a. It's almost like a dare. It's almost like, well, I'm going to prove you wrong. Um, and then through the process, I think we found that that coupled with that's a, that's you know one snapshot of a much bigger program. That coupled with the training that goes around that can be enough. Yet I hear of athletes who habitually run twelve four hundreds or twenty four hundreds or. I've heard of forty four hundreds, and again, if that's what works for that individual athlete, then so be it. But I think I've just found a mechanism where i found I found athletes who are successful with the mechanism that I imply, which is doing a little bit less. The quality is real quality, and so um, I don't. I think one of the things that I do see, and again, I'm going to generalise here, is that triathletes are in. a chronic state of fatigue. And I talk about someone being, they were conditioned to an inch inch of their lives. Conditioning doesn't win you races, speed does. Um, And I had someone else I work with who was very, I guess, very wise. And I remember something he said that stuck in my mind. He said, you know, rest makes you fast, not training. Training makes you tired. And so getting that balance right of the right amount of intensity and when I do intensity, the most important thing I do, that I look at when intensity isn't the intensity, it's what I'm going to do to recover from the intensity. And so there's got to be a balance, an equal balance or you know, compensation for the hard work. Um, but when we go hard, we go really hard. We don't do a lot of training in the middle, grey zones, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, on a weekly basis, what, how would, what would
1: a typical week or microcycle perhaps look like? Uh, how do you include those days of easier training or t- time between hard sessions?
0: Yeah, I guess what I use, I mean, I've had people call it a formula and I think that gives me more credit than, than is due because it's not really a formula that is guaranteed. A formula almost talks about something that's guaranteed an outcome, but I use a process where we don't work on calendar days. Um, I've done away with, I mean, I was actually conditioned in that as an athlete where we worked on you know cycles of four days, um, cycles of three weeks, Um, And so the simple approach I take, rightly or wrongly, is that day one for us is the most intense day. Now, that day could fall on whatever calendar day it falls on is the day it falls on. And it helps having professional athletes because they don't have other restrictions in their lives. But day one is the most intense day. That's the day we look to hit race pace plus or we look to overextend, even overreach. But that's the day where we really get after it. Um, if we get day one right, day two is what I call tempo day. And, and I mean, tempo is a funny word because it can be used to describe rhythm and I use it to describe rhythm and intensity. But when I'm talking to my athletes, they understand that tempo is about 85 to 90% of th- what I would call threshold. Um, if we get that day right, they're pretty fatigued. And on day three, all we can really hope to achieve is volume. In, endurance because that's one thing that's clear is that under fatigue you can still create endurance but under you know fatigue it's very hard to you know improve strength or power of speed so day three is endurance day then day four is a regeneration day of some sorts and so depending on the work we've done will determine how much rest i give that can be complete rest it can be A percentage of rest, which is still quite low. It might be a 24 hour break. So we may finish, for example, at, you know, three o'clock on day three. We'll train on the next calendar day being day four, but it's actually a 24 to 36 hour break. So I'm looking more at time, um, time. You know, as a measure of, of you know when we go again. And then I repeat that cycle. I get to the stage where if we've done enough work, I'll add two rest days in that cycle. So it'll be like one, two, three, four, four. And then I tend to stick to 21-day sometimes. We just did a cycle of 25 days in January, which was an exception, and I was playing around with it and, it. and I think it was successful. I haven't gone into the data enough to really be confident that I would do it again. But we kind of work on these, you know, three week on, one week off, and so it's this whole principle of, um, you know, of overload, progressive overload, and recover. But again, for me, the the big change that's happened as I've, I guess, grown as a coach or, or I've spent more time coaching is the big change has actually been that I give my athletes more rest than I used to, and I was really. I think I had it pushed into me to be afraid of rest and I see a lot of coaches who are afraid of rest and sure if you're not doing the work then rest is unnecessary but if you're doing the work then it it's only really you know assimilated and absorbed and you make those adaptions with the help of rest and so that's the approach that I take and it's quite simple um, and I don't deviate from it very often the athletes can actually you know they know what's they don't know the the specifics of the session but they know what's coming so it also deals with that part where athletes do like to know like i might not give them the specifics of the session until the night before the morning but they know i need to be ready i've got 99 sure what kind of work i'm going to be doing so i can get the nutrition right and i can get the psychology right so i'm setting them up to succeed but the specifics i like to hold back until i'm really sure that what i wanted to do is still appropriate because that can change you know in six to eight hours or even shorter durations
1: so on the specifics you mentioned the eight by 400 example on the run do you take a similar approach on the bike and swim that perhaps um, like less chunky main sets than what we might be used to seeing other coaching or F, uh, training groups doing in in those two disciplines as well or is it more in running
0: now the approach that i take is across the board um i really i really try to look at just what is the what is the right amount of work to do? And I think what I've bought into, again, rightly or wrongly, is I've bought into this nation of the crossover between the three sports. Um where, you know, if I'm doing VO2 max work, it's VO2 max work. Your body doesn't necessarily know whether, you know, it doesn't distinguish swimming, cycling, and running. It distinguishes an intensity and an and a pressure that's applied to the organism that, you know, in you know, creates a response. Um so what I try to do, and I think what helps me achieve less work is that I try not to duplicate what I'm doing. I try not to double down on everything. And so, um, you know, endurance is endurance. I think there's a point of saturation with endurance for the athletes I work with um, where I do see other coaches who, you know, we've got to swim one endurance swim a week and we've got to do a long run and we've got to do a long ride. And I'm thinking at what stage is that cup full? You know, why does the endurance on the bike not translate to the endurance in the pool? And there's obviously some, Muscular endurance components become part of it. But when you look at the durations that we're racing in the ITU stuff, it's not really that long. Um, and so I just make sure that I get away from this notion of taking these chunky sets, which actually duplicate. And I had a coach here, uh, this week, a visiting coach who was helping me. And, and one of the conversations we had around was around warm down. And what's always fascinating for me working with individual discipline coaches is that they're very right in their approach in the sense that we had done some quality work uh, we had done some lactate tolerance work we would have generated high amounts of lactate and I know that because they were rested and they had the right nutrition to achieve that because I think that's one of the other things is the sets you do can you actually achieve them when you fatigue but nonetheless we did this set and then he started to prescribe what was quite a long warm down and I, qu- I said why why are we warming down he said, well, we need to warm down. And I said, yeah, but the guys have got another session. Like This isn't in isolation. And I always use the analogy, if if we warmed up and warmed down for each individual session in triathlon like we did for individual disciplines, we'll be training 10 hours a day because that process is quite long. So I'm taking, and I'm, I'll be honest, I'm taking, I'm hazarding a guess here that there is this crossover, this enormous crossover. Um that allows me to approach triathlon like I do an individual discipline sport. So where I've tried this is I was coaching Simon Clark in professional cycling and I was saying, okay, he, these are guys who race three weeks in a row. These are guys that are racing events like San Remo, which is over seven hours. They're not doing much more than 23, 24 hours volume. Why would I do 30 to 35 hours volume? So when I do the the programming, it's done in volume by duration and then I just divide the pie up based on what we need and what that individual athlete needs and what the race we're preparing for. So I, it's, it, I find it hard to explain um, and, I, and it's hard I think at times. I know I've struggled with other coaches to create that picture in their mind um, but it's ironic because in my mind it's, it's kind of really, really clear. So I think that's one of the challenges and obviously as you're finding I'm, I'm pretty wordy as well.
1: Well it's uh, definitely a a very interesting theory of of the mechanism behind it but I mean this is how things work like in coaching precedes finding the mechanisms for anything so like anecdotal evidence like you have found a recipe that works for you and then you have this theory for the crossover effect that might be the reason for it and uh, to me it sounds pretty logical to be honest I don't consider it like a bad explanation at all but who, who knows maybe something else is behind it as well e- either way it's, uh, it's really really interesting to hear how you approach things but just one on this topic then when you have the intensity on day one of the cycle you still do intensity in all three disciplines then and similarly on day two when you have tempo
0: or would you maybe do two out of three or how does that work? Now that's a good question Um, I guess I don't approach them as disciplines I have a very clear picture of the, the type of intensity I want to do, the duration of that intensity, and then I look for the modality, being swim, bike and run, that's best going to achieve that um, and is going to have the least amount of impact or risk from an, this injury or this wellbeing, um, I guess, foundation that I spoke about earlier. Um, and so we chunk our sessions or what I refer as chunking Um we we tend to train in the morning and then i separate my training if it's easier training i try to create a minimum period of 4 hours if it's intense training then i try to create a minimum period of 6 hours between sessions now those two periods they could be swim bike and run in the morning and they theoretically they could be swim bike and run in the afternoon that it doesn't ever work out that way but what i'm looking for is x amount of time divided you know, split up into the disciplines that I'm working on and then X amount of time in the afternoon divided as I need to based on the individual, you know, strengths and weaknesses of the athletes, the races we're preparing for. Um, So very rarely will I do uh, intensity across all three disciplines and I'm looking for, like I said, what, you know, what I can achieve realistically knowing that if I get the – and I'm talking real intensity – if we get the real intensity right – you've only really got one shot at it. And so it's important to get it right and then it's important to let that work settle. And I think that's you know overcome the risk of being greedy and going, well, that was great. I wonder if we could do a bit more this afternoon and where that will lead. And my experience is the gains are minimal and the risks outweigh the gains. Um, And so, yeah, again, when you look at that kind, if you were to look at what I'm doing graphically, you would see these bars based on, that four-day cycle, and then within that on a daily basis, um, you would see these two chunks of time um, where they are blocked out. We're going to train in these time, and that's what that's what the athletes get. You, you need to be available in these times, and as we get closer, they'll, they'll be told what disciplines we're going to do, and as we get closer, there'll be the actual breakdown of the session. And so, again, it's a balance because the athletes always like to know earlier, um, but as I tell them, like, If you want to be the best, sometimes you have to have the the inconvenience of getting information a little bit later, never too late because that's not effective. And so I I work on this game of patience, um, knowing that when you need the information, you'll have it. And if I don't give you information, it's because I'm questioning what I wanted to do. And I think that's one of the other things I I really, no one critiques me harder than me. And I'm always questioning whether what I'm doing is right. And I'm always looking for someone, not necessarily to, validate what I'm doing but I'm looking for someone to, to point out that what I'm doing is wrong um, and so again it's, it's an experiment that's going on all the time. So can you explain that a bit more like for example tonight after we finish
1: this interview I guess you might be going back and reviewing what you did today with uh, some hard bike riding and uh, some swimming in the afternoon what does that process look like for you and in what scenario might you change what
0: you had planned for tomorrow that's another really good question so the process for me uh at the end of the day well it actually happens it generally happens within 15 minutes of the session so one of the things in the group that i'm i've you know the the privilege to coach is that we have these agreements, and the agreement is that for me, and it's a, we, it's a bit like tennis. And so the agreement means that for me to best help them, they need to give me feedback immediately. Now the data side's really easy because most of the devices they're using that measure what went on during the session. Either upload automatically as close as they get to their computer, or they can upload it quite quickly. But the big thing for me is the context is are the comments. Um, I use Training Peaks as a tool at the moment. We're looking at making some changes as far as is there something better or something easier, and that follows with that notion. For me, it's everything's about can we make it easier? Can we make it you know a little bit more time efficient? Um, But then I assess what we're doing, and the first thing I assess for is you know did we achieve what I wanted to achieve, and. Even in the micro session, in the day, what we're doing in the morning, if I don't achieve, if I don't think what we did in the morning is going to allow me to achieve what I want to achieve in the afternoon, then I'll change it. And I say to the athletes, it's my prerogative at any time to change the training we're doing. But if I make a decision, it's based on some facts, based on a combination of some objective measures and some subjective measures. And so, like tonight, uh, you know, we finished the swim. First, and some had a run after the swim. I've gone in, I've reviewed all the data. So I've looked at the duration, I've looked at the intensity that I was looking for. Did they actually follow the prescription? Um, I've looked at the comments to how they feel. Um, and for tomorrow, for example, I've actually taken out uh, one session. I planned to do a, what I'd put down in my mind as a recovery swim. Um, and I've looked at it and I've, and I've actually made a decision. I thought it's going to be 30, 35 minutes of not really anything. Like, it's not going to give me what I thought I might need. I think their training balance right now is very good. We're going to do a recovery ride, and it's very explicit what that looks like from an intensity perspective, but I've taken out I've taken out a swim already. Now, if tomorrow morning they go and do the recovery ride and they get home, like I said, within 15 minutes, the agreement is I've got the data and the comments. If I feel that someone isn't recovered, then I may add the swim back in. I may pick up the phone and go, listen... You haven't finished where, you're not where I thought you were going to be. And to get you to where I need you to be tomorrow, we're going to do something. And that inversely, that can be I'm going to remove a session. And there's a lot of work goes into getting athletes comfortable with that because athletes tend to think that a remove session is a punishment. And I say a remove session is a reward. And so there's a lot that goes on there's a lot that's gone on behind the scenes that's allowed me to work with this group of individuals for them to have the trust in me as a coach that what I'm doing is I'm constantly assessing and I'm probably assessing myself I'm assessing myself as a coach as much at the same time as assessing them as the athletes but that again that's the process so I sat in the corner you know 30 minutes ago and went through training peaks and what I'm looking for is something that is an outline, something that grabs my attention. So it's a high level. Is there anything there that I didn't think I'd see? It's okay. Then I, I give them that confirmation. Tomorrow we're going to start at 9.30. We're going to start on a bike. Then I went in a little bit deeper and said, okay, I've given the green light, but can I go in a bit deeper and look for something that I didn't expect to see? Once I've seen what I expected, then it's the green light and it's go ahead. But that happens. That can happen three times a day. It certainly happens every day. And I think it's that process and that attention to detail really, you know, I think it should underpin what all coaches do. And I think it does when you look back and you try to distinguish, you know, why some coaches have successful programs, why some don't. I think what you will find is some common denominators around this attention to detail and this willingness to constantly assess and be prepared to be wrong. And I think that's the other thing is putting your hand up and say, some guys, I got today wrong. I thought it would lead to this, and you're in this stage. I can make it better or worse. I can be stubborn and stick to my plan or I can be honest and go, we need to change the plan. And, again, that's based on a foundation of a very high level of trust and confidence in what I'm doing, which obviously is something that is garnished over time. Um, but new athletes come in and I and that's the first thing I ask them. I go, I just need you to trust me and give me a period of time um, and I need you to follow what I say pretty much to the letter until there's a reason not to. And if there's a reason not to, then obviously we have something to talk about.
1: And when you look for whether you achieved what you wanted to achieve, I mean, one of the things that you said you look at is did the, what the prescription followed. So that leads into how do you prescribe sessions? How do you have a preference for prescribing using RPE, heart rate, pace, power, et cetera?
0: So how I prescribe the actual sessions and workouts will depend on the modality. Um, swimming's done to pace. Um, and the pace is really dictated on some fundamental testing, not very, not the level of testing I would like to do. Um, but some very basic testing and then in conjunction with demands of competition. Um, I think there's one thing I do have. I've, I have this understanding, which has come through time, obviously, of what it takes. Um, so swimming's based on, uh, on pace. Um, as the main goal, um, cycling is all power in conjunction with their subjective feedback. Um, but it's also power, but looking at the torque piece of that. Um, so not just, uh, you know, so looking at the force component of, of power, not just the acceleration and distinguishing where people are at are these people can they meet the demands of competition because they deliver it through cadence are they meeting it because they can deliver it through force and always take into account that in my opinion and my experience that running off the bike there's a high relation to the force relation in the power equation as opposed just to the power equation can you elaborate on that? um when you look at the top runners and you look at their build, so like Tyler, I'll use an example because I think there's, there's no shame in using example. Like Tyler Mislachuk, we keep him around fifty nine to sixty kilos, which is a battle, and so he's not a big, strong boy. He doesn't have the muscle mass. Now, the advantage of that in if he was just a runner is that he has the exact attributes that you would look at and you would categorise as being necessary to be a, a world class runner but he's not a world-class runner, he's a triathlete. So you need to, he needs to be able to get through that bike section. If he was someone who rode low cadence and tried to use force as the primary driver in achieving power, we would have to do one of two things. We would have to either increase his muscle mass, which would potentially decrease his running, or we would do it without increasing muscle mass, which would create a huge amount of fatigue. And so that's where I really dial into the details on how we're going about things. And I think that, I mean, the best athletes master everything. They they can produce the force if they choose to, but they know when to. They can produce the cadence. I mean, Kirsten Kasper is a good example, and she's still at work in progress, which is really exciting because she's been successful. But most of her power is achieved through cadence. She's found an ability to comfortably sit at 120 to 125 RPM. It obviously has a limit. There'll be times in certain courses where you need that brute Force. And that for me is the exciting part about her as an example, is that's something we're yet to achieve. But if you said, if you gave me two athletes and said which one I would prefer, I would prefer the low torque, high cadence approach in its effect on running off the bike than the low cadence, high force impact, because I would say that athlete probably you know, their their shape, their, their lower limb um, muscle mass would be, I would presume to be a lot higher because there's one thing that's very clear is there is that relationship between the ability to produce high force and muscle mass. And so, but it's almost counterintuitive to what you would do with a runner. So for me, this is where the interesting stuff happens because no one can tell you that they've got it all dialed in. It is all trial and error and based on you know, a lot of anecdotal and some uh, scientific background on achieving, but pulling it all together is what makes triathlon coaching so exciting. Yeah. So prescriptions, so let's keep going with that. We were at cycling power. Cycling, cycling power. Um, running, I'm just starting, I'll be honest, I'm, I've been a slow adapter with power. I'm not convinced yet. Um, and a little of that is probably a little bit of arrogance in I say, well, you know, I think the guys are running quite well. So why would I do anything different? But I'm not naive enough, I think, to buy into that. So I'm starting to incorporate that. Um, I still use heart rate, which I know is old school, but I'm, I don't. I use heart rate more of a guide. So one of the things I, I do take control over, and one of the things I've done that you would say is applies to all athletes is I've slowed down their longer, slower running. So I've got them to run slow, and I I don't like the word polarized, but we have pulled apart. When they run slow, they run very slow. And when we run fast, we run very fast. And I just, I use heart rate as a measure because I've got to use something to slow them down. I say we're doing a long run. Um, Pace isn't as reliable with GPS, but I'll say, you know, I'll set a heart rate ceiling. Um, And I know it's not exact and I know the scientific people out there will probably cringe a little bit, but at the end of the day, you have a toolbox and you have a variety of things, and you're looking for an outcome, and you tend to grab the one that delivers the outcome. And so for me, that's been the catalyst. And after a period of time, you actually can take away some of the tools because the athletes buy in and they go, "No, I get it. I can self pace now." Whereas the new athletes struggle too. So that, that's how I approach um, the three disciplines. I use pace on running. We use a lot of goal pace. You know what? You know, and we work on it at the moment. We're speculating, but we're, we're saying. You know, I'm working on the presumption that you know to be a gold medalist in Tokyo and you're only looking at the run, you've probably got to run between 29.15 and 29.30 in what will be extreme environmental conditions. So from that, and no one can guarantee that and so there's the risk involved, but from that I can work backwards and say, well, what workouts do I need to do to achieve that level of performance on that date? And then I create a trajectory to get there. Um, so you've got to anchor off something. and you normally you're looking for, to anchor off something that's concrete. That's a guarantee when someone says absolutely. If you you know you know in swimming more or less within a second if you swim this this time, you will be successful. In triathlon, it's a little bit more subjective due to the nature of the sport with the swim and the bike first and then the environmental conditions. But you still have to anchor on something. And I think that's what I've learned is i've I've developed a degree of confidence where I can anchor, predict. And then that helps guide the process to what I'm doing from prescription. In that case of running, it can be paced. We need to to achieve that outcome. We need to do x amount of work at a certain amount of pace for a certain duration, and and that's done progressively. Have you taken the same
1: approach to easier, low intensity training in biking and swimming as well, or is it uh, mostly running?
0: Now, I've no, I've applied that across the board. Um, I've 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 tried to create. I mean, I've got a philosophy on, on what I'm looking for intensity and at the end of the day, the tools, the mechanism we do that are just to try and reinforce that or to give the athletes a guide or a measure because obviously I can't put myself in their in their bodies. I can see what they're doing but I certainly can't feel what they feel. So um, I think at the end of the day, you've got to come up with something that has the athletes achieving what you want them to do. And so, no, definitely, I mean, we do, I think you, you'll hear the athletes say, and I've had... I've had challenges with athletes who refuse to train slow, and they've been conditioned in a certain way or with other coaches, and and really, see those relationships don't professionally don't last long because uh, it, what it does do it, it, and where it manifests isn't in their slow medium training. It manifests when their inability to hit the high end stuff, and they get frustrated. But I think they form a, a, a key role in. In creating that, because of the level of fatigue, they're running faster than they need to, or riding faster than they need to when they should be going easy. Uh, but managing that and controlling that is is it can be is quite a challenge. So, what are the do you put, what are the specific ceilings?
1: Like, if you talk about heart rate or power-based prescriptions for those low-intensity
0: runs and rides and swims, what would the prescription be? Look, the, the prescriptions are very individual. Um, But I use, I probably use 60% of heart rate max as a bit of a ceiling. And then and and so that would be an athlete athlete I haven't worked with or I haven't got a lot of data on. I'll start conservatively. And obviously, as you go through time, it narrows and narrows and it becomes more precise as you work it out. But I am conservative because the only only concern I have with running slow, I have this thing you can't run too slow, but obviously you can mechanically. Uh, And I think, you know, Bobby McGee and I go go back and forth on this quite a lot is that if you can run slow from a velocity perspective but you can take control of the run cadence, the stride rate, and maintain it high, then you're doing, then is there a too slow? And you see, you know, people refer to, you know, the African shuffle and you look at the way they warm up and you think, well, how can someone who runs so fast warm up so slow? But if you look at it, it's not slow, lazy running. It's slow in velocity but it's very deliberate in the way they go about it, their arm carriage, their foot strike, the you know, the frequency of foot strike. So they're the big things that I do. So when I look at that, I'm not afraid to slow it right down. And and then, again, I, I take that same approach, like better to be too slow than too fast. Like very rarely do you come home and go, wow, I got injured today because I ran too slow. And so, again, it's, it's, an, it's a conservative approach. And you'll probably find that, in reality, I'm quite risk-averse. Um, but in that... Like I said, when you go right back to our first conversation, that risk-averse, conservative nature, if one of my foundations is health and well-being, it certainly ties a lot of that stuff in together.
1: Yeah, that's a perfect explanation. And uh, what about periodization? How do you, if you
0: periodize things or is it fairly similar uh, from year to year or across the year? For me, the periodization works back from the race calendar, um, and I certainly wouldn't say it's traditional. I'm a big, I guess, fan or advocate for get for setting athletes to succeed. And when you look at the way the ITU calendar is laid out, in particular, uh, it's quite difficult to apply the perfect periodization to it without sacrificing something. I mean, one of the one of the greatest challenges, and and I'm. It's hard, and I'm I'm probably against it. But at the end of that, I, I kind of try to rise up to the challenges in our in our Olympic sport. You spend four years preparing the athletes to be world champion, which is about consistency over five to six races, and in every four years, the big dance, the Olympics, is about performance on one day. So you've got these opposing process, and so what I try to do is I try to lay out what. I would still call it a periodisation because it's broken down into periods with clear goals and and when you look at it retrospectively, it certainly has clear rhythms and it becomes obvious. Doing it forward is a bit harder, um, but I would say I certainly periodise what I do. I'm a fan of what people call block training, so getting chunks or blocks of specific work done um, within that periodisation, but periodisation really comes back from the races we're trying to do and the only time... It's a luxury to go into, I think it's a luxury, to go into races and train, you hear, I'm going to train through this race. And I think, well, why are we racing? What are we going to get from a race we train through? You probably, it's arrogant to think you'll win. Um, the data we get and what we learn is skewed by fatigue. Um, why don't we just do it properly or not, or not do it? And so again, it gets easier. And one thing that's very clear, and, and it's the privilege that I have, is that I'm, I'm talking from a position of privilege because I have world-class athletes who I coach. And because of that, you know, I can sit down with a Tyler Mislachuk and I know what races he's doing through the year. So it makes my attempt at periodization easier. But there's athletes who are new who it's very hard to even attempt to periodise because they've got to score points and there's no guarantees and and I see coaches one of the things I see coaches make a mistake they pick a race we're going to peak for Montreal WTS and I think that's not a race you're actually guaranteed to even start there's got to be some things that give you the privilege to peak for a certain race you've got to have some guarantees and I think that's one of again it's it's the reality of what we do and I remember doing a presentation on this in Australia and one of the things I got was you know did I periodise this plan for this under-23 athlete? And I said, well, no, not in the traditional form because we were clear we wanted to race world champs. That was our goal race. But the process to get there, many needed to perform at certain races to be selected, which meant certain levels of performance. And when you laid out the timing of those, it actually went against all the general principles of what you would do if you had a choice. If you had a choice, you'd be like, you know, August 26th, Olympic Games, that's my goal. If you... If, I don't have any athletes who are selected for the Olympics. So even with Tyler, we have a goal for that day. One of the ironies is he's not actually guaranteed. Now, the question everyone says, well, who else is Canada going to take? And I say, well, yeah, there's – but the reality is we're almost flying in the face of the fact he's not selected, he's not guaranteed, he's not on that team, yet we're preparing for that. And you get yourself into that position where you have the luxury of doing that and it's easier – But it's quite rare you have that, you have that luxury. And that's where it's interesting working across different federations. Someone like a, you know, a Nicola Spirit going into London, she probably knew she was going to the Olympics four years out, you know, without being guaranteed. Like it's, it's an obvious thing. Whereas you look at the Australian girls, they're fighting each other until end of May. And so you go, well, how do you go through that process and be, you can't not peak to make the team because the team's so competitive. But if you peak to make the team, okay, you make the team, how competitive are you going to be at the Olympics? And so certain athletes and certain federations have, I guess, an advantage, and you would think that those coaches who work with those types of athletes probably should be ex- exercising some sort of, I don't know, classical periodization or something that's been more scientifically proven, whereas the reality is most athletes and coaches are dealing with a much more chaotic approach. So I know again another long answer, but you know I certainly, if you are, if I was going to argue, do I periodise? Absolutely. Is it traditional or standard? Would you recognise it? Maybe not. But that's the nature of the sport we're dealing. I guess it's
1: uh, perhaps getting into semantics a bit, but it sounds like there's not a specific formula, but there is variation, there is change throughout the year.
0: Yeah, I think yeah, we and it is we always run the risk. I think in these conversations, getting into semantics, but um, yeah, there's 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 periods of training that we do that are very deliberate and very set up around the outcomes we're trying to achieve. It's just like I said, it's not something if you were sitting with someone they would recognise straight away as being what people would term periodisation. <laughs> So when you talk about the intense workouts and how
1: an equally important thing to the workouts is the recovery from those workouts, um, talk about that recovery, but also nutrition and, uh, and nutrition generally speaking. What
0: uh, How do you view that for these elite triathletes? I think nutrition is critical. Um, I probably, I think I always knew that it was critical, but I didn't put the value on it as a young coach that I think I needed to. Um, and that's probably because we got away with certain things. Um, so for me, the gains in nutrition aren't always obvious, um, but they're apparent in when you're looking at performance and you start to review performance. What's the difference between this performance and that performance? And you start dialing into it and you're like, no, that's the same, that's the same. And one of the things I found is, oh, the thing we changed was the quality or the, the nutrition, the approach nutrition, um, especially – you know, my focus has been, and my belief has been that the sport to win the sport, you need to be a fantastic runner. And I know I'm stating the obvious there, um, and with that comes a certain uh, body type, body shape. Um, but with that, on the flip side, comes some risks with nutrition. Um, so there's this push towards you know very light, lean bodies, small muscle mass, uh, and the ways of achieving that can be through. I guess what I would call cheating and nutrition. Um, yet, you know, the strength part of triathlon is critical, and you need nutrition to underpin that strength part. So, um, nutrition is an area that I've gone deeper and deeper into to the point where I outsource what I do uh, because I think it's such a specific area, and it's such an, an area that's constantly undergoing research and constantly being updated. Some of it good, some of it bad, but um, you know. I every athlete I work with has access to um, a nutritionist, a dietitian, um, that is, I guess, integrated in what I'm doing training-wise. So again, if you talk about periodization, for me, that's about, you know, we match our nutritional needs based on the training. And so there's a tight relationship between myself and the people who work with me in nutrition to make sure that the athletes are fueling to meet the demands I'm setting. Um, And so that's, That is a huge piece and it's a piece that I'm excited about because I think I'm probably only really 50% of the way through getting it right and so there's 50% more potential to enhance performing, which is exciting for me because we're not talking about enhancing performance, doing more work. Nutrition for me is the free stuff. It's the stuff that we can take care of that takes a bit of organisation and and it takes uh, a little bit of discipline but it's not more hours out swimming, riding or running and I think it's... uh, I think we're seeing that in some other sports. I think there's, you know, there's a whole debate around the impact of uh, obviously running shoes, um, but I know intimately there's some coaches who uh, are having a huge impact on the niche- nutritional approach to marathon runners, and so I'm going, yes, the shoes are making these guys faster, but I also know that in the background their attention to nutrition is higher than it's ever been, and that's in a traditional sport. Um, and I've seen that in having the luxury of working in cycling as well, Um you know when i look at the you know what are the new frontiers it's it's ironic that some of these new frontiers are what i what i call foundations there's there's been a, an acceptance or an embracing of how nutrition can enhance performance through the aid of recovery but also energy availability then to achieve maximal levels of performance
1: and uh, recovery what what is there to say about recovery that we haven't said
0: already <laughs> No, I mean I think recovery is two is two parts. It's a there's a mental part and there's a physical part, um, and I think that all recovery does is it speeds up the process. It never eradicates fatigue entirely, but it's about maximising your chances of recovering from a session so you can do the next session. Um, and there's a physical and psychological component to that. And I think, so I think with me, I, I give the athletes a range of modalities they can use, um, to recover and they, that are all, you know, supposedly demonstrate, you know, demonstrate to be effective. Um, but the big thing recovery is also the, the psychological part is how they rested psychologically and do they believe their recovery is working and so you know if I say to someone you know you're going to use contrast baths you're going to use hot and cold and they don't believe in it doesn't really matter how scientifically proved it is there's a huge component in their belief so I use a range of modalities I'm big on soft tissue therapy again it's probably the least of the the physical therapies that has any real scientific backing but my background creates a bias and then By practicing it and seeing the results I've had, not the performance results, but the the, you know one of my measures of success is number of days lost to injury and illness. And we lose by design the minimum number of days to injury and illness. And I've bought into the fact that my use of soft tissue therapy at the right time, and I'm just talking massage, correlates or it's not correlate is indicative of that. Um, It's one of those. Probably things where you know I don't mind pulling some things out now and then and go well. Does it really impact? But soft tissue theory is one I'm actually quite personally a- attached to, and so it doesn't come at a huge cost. Um, I certainly don't think it does any harm to athletes. The athletes believe in it, so it could be a little bit of a uh, a placebo. Um, but then you know again, it's that person, it's the athlete's personal preference. If they feel recovered you know, after a hard session or in between sessions or the day after or after a race, then that's probably indicative they're going to be able to achieve the targets in training. And so, again, it comes comes down to that debate, what is recovery is, you know, how do you measure recovery? For me, recovery is the ability to come out and do the next session that you required at the level, at the level you wanted, and you go, yep, recovered, ready to go, you know, and there's a, there's a variety of way obviously, to achieve that.
1: A few final questions, uh, so first, I wanted to ask, do you see anything out there that
0: you think is overhyped or reaching fad like status? Uh, look I think this in this day and age everything's overhyped um, because I think everything has a has a place and there there is no one piece that provides the silver bullet everyone 's looking for a silver bullet, so anything that's you know I guess, presented or marketed as being, this is the one, you know, if you have one thing that needs to be this one, I kind of... Roll my eyes at. Um, obviously, I'm a coaching advocate. So when people say, you know, I've got X amount of dollars, what should I get? Coaching? <laughs> what tools do I use? Well, it depends. There's no one tool that's going to make it better. It's the it's the culmination, the pulling together everything that's available. So there's nothing for me that stands out as being overhyped. In, in actual fact, I think everything's a little bit overhyped, and 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 I respect that. You know, everyone's trying to pitch that what they have makes the difference that's general marketing but for me there's i'm yet to find something a device or a tool or something like that that actually has changed you know has changed our lives has changed the direction of what we what we do outside of things like an iphone or you know things that are around communication and uh, what do you think are the
1: most common mistakes that athletes whether it be amateur or professional do in their triathlon training
0: I think the most common mistake is this this notion of overtraining or doubling down. So there's an there's an inherent insecurity, excuse me, which leads people to go, "Well, I'll just do a bit more, and that will surely make it a bit better." Um, and whereas, I guess I'm an advocate for maybe try a little bit less and see if that makes you better. And so it's a generalist statement, but when I look at people, the majority of people are either dupe, unbeknownst to them, you know, are duplicating. Um, or they're doing they're doing more of something than i think they really need that will set them up to meet their goals or their demands and uh, what would be your final piece or pieces of advice for age group
1: athletes specifically
0: i think health and wellness i think that we you know i spoke about it earlier with my elite olympic level athletes and if they're you know, that's the the highest level of performance that I think you can attain in our sport. And so I think if you've got athletes at that level who are talking about something as fundamental as health and wellbeing, then it should be applied across the board. And so I always encourage any and all athletes, um, get your health right, get some stability, create some form of homeostasis and then add training on top of that and and prioritise that as as that foundation, that piece that... Uh, that will then set you up to succeed. How well you'll go will, will ultimately depend on, again, what training you do and what you're able to do with your time and, and your, your life. Um, but I'm quite clear that um, an unhealthy athlete uh, is guaranteed to have some is guaranteed to fall short of the goals that they're looking for. And I've always said, you know, I'd rather race under-trained than injured. You can always tow the start line with a few less hours training. It's very hard to tow the start line injured, whether that injury be physical or mental.
1: And uh, to wrap up the rapid fire questions with uh, one sentence answers only. So a bit of a challenge, but uh, let's uh, let's see how you get through them. The first one being, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports?
0: I'm reading something at the moment, which I think, and I'm going to get this wrong, is called 33 Approaches to War. And it's just to do with strategy. And so I read a lot of stuff on strategy. I'm big on techno music. Um, I don't listen, I'm not a triathlon person, I don't listen to anything or read anything related to triathlon, I try to do my job during the day and switch off from triathlon because I think that again, notice that there's a point of saturation um, and I what I do do is I make sure that the knowledge that I don't have or I'm not willing to get, I surround myself with people who have it.
1: That could be the answer to the second question, perhaps, which is what's the
0: personal habit that's helped you achieve success? But if you want to say that or something else, add something, then feel free. More than personal habit, I think i work on a habit to try and create a balance and to help me achieve my success. I've, form, I've surrounded myself with people who are much smarter than I am. And all I really do is I play a role as the conductor. I bring those people into triathlon, which is a balance. And, and a lot of them make me look a little bit better than I am.
1: Yeah, there's this famous saying, I don't know who it's attributed to, but uh, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Uh, which, I've never uh, been in that
0: room. Yeah. <laughs> uh, finally, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your career? Two things. Um, I wish I'd known or appreciated or embraced the notion of rest earlier in my triathlon career. I think I could have done a better job as a coach early on. Um, and I wish someone had told me how competitive coaching is, and how and how tough it can be working in a really, really competitive environment. An environment that, with social media, can get quite nasty. And so, yeah, I wish I wish I'd had probably it wouldn't have changed what I'd done, but it probably would have prepared me um, for where I'm at.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Jono. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and uh, hear your thoughts on on training and uh, performance. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, again, thank you for for having me here and watch your athletes train
0: and for being on the podcast and sharing with the listeners. Absolute pleasure. And uh, I know that everyone loves what you're doing and your contribution. And um, yeah, no, it's a pleasure to have you here.
1: All right I hope that you enjoyed that conversation Uh, I want to again uh, just thank Jono and Bobby so much for taking the time to do uh, these interviews to take their evening to sit down in front of the microphone and chat but also to of course uh, allow me to be present for the sessions that they uh, delivered to the squad and, and just hang out and talk coaching which I really really appreciated massively. I'll just mention really quickly that perhaps the biggest takeaway of all from this very interesting conversation for me was uh, about the crossover effect that uh, Anjano talked about between the, the three different disciplines and how that crossover effect impacts how to think about both volume and intensity of training and what really is the minimal effective dose. That was for me something that uh, I keep thinking about even now a week or so later if you want to revisit this episode in written form, as usual, you can find the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com, where we'll also have links to related episodes. We'll have links to all episodes that have the Elite Coach tag, uh, and uh, specifically a couple of interviews that I think uh, would be useful to listen to and uh, con- compare and contrast to this one are the ones that I did with Adil Twaiten in the uh, just last week's episodes, actually, which is almost the polar opposite of the philosophy of Jono. Uh, that just goes to show that there are many ways to skin a cat. So uh, if you haven't listened to that, make sure to go and do that as well. But also the one with uh, Philip Seip from a few weeks ago, uh, which is uh, very similar, I think. And uh, Philip's uh, philosophy is very aligned with uh, Jono's. So that was uh, another example of, of these things that we talked about in today's interview. And next week, I interview Bobby McGee. This was uh, from the same weekend of uh, being in the Algarve for the training camp, where Bobby McGee was also helping out with Jono's squad. And we sat down for an evening with doing first uh, one interview and then the next. And uh, next week, you'll hear the one with Bobby, who, if you don't know it, is uh, one of the world's most renowned running coaches and triathlon running coaches specifically. One piece of house cleaning items before we wrap up for today. I have just launched the newly updated website. So scientificdraftlon.com has a new look and feel to it. You can find all of the same information as before, but hopefully uh, things should be a lot clearer, better presented and so on. There will still be some bugs, some typos and uh, some things going on. So uh, bear with that and uh, we'll hopefully be able to clean those out as time goes by. But already I think that it is much, much, much better than it was previously. Uh, So hopefully you'll find it too. Check it out if you're interested in learning about, for example, our training plans and our coaching services. Big thanks to Precision Hydration that you can find on PrecisionHydration.com. Get 15% off your electrolytes with the promo code show 15 And big thanks to roca that you can find on roca.com forward slash TTS. That's where you can get a 20% discount code for your order of wetsuits, trisuits, swim skits, goggles, and high performance eyewear.